did it. You did it. All right, let's see. It's a bag. It is a bag. Hello. Welcome to Foss and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Christine. So, today is the second episode of our two-part series. Uh, before we say what this episode about, what was last episode? Just to, just to remind uh, the audience. So, last episode was about my experience learning how to use Emacs. And the way that that fits as a theme to today's episode is Christine and I decided, I think when we... Before we even started the podcast, we threw around this idea of doing a series where we each kind of overcame something that we had anxiety about learning, did an episode about it. Right. So if you listened to the last episode, you heard all about Morgan's experience learning Emacs and also why that was an anxiety-inducing thing in the first place. Largely because Christine is an Emacs wizard. But uh, you ended up learning it and it was great and everything's good. And so in this episode, like like with the Emacs episode, we hope this to be kind of interesting and a bit general, but maybe even more so than the Emacs episode. This is yeah. really about the experience of learning a thing. So what are you learning? So I have been learning to use a sewing machine. Yep. And to a lot of people, myself included, that's a fairly basic like household machine to use. What was so anxiety-inducing about it for you? Because the first time I ever tried to learn to use a sewing machine, you were graciously uh, walking me through it. And I did know some sewing things already and that I knew how to sew from by, uh, sew hand-stitching. And I knew how to sew buttons onto things. But I did not know how to use a sewing machine. I was nervous about it. It always looked like this scary-looking machine. And you were like, Christine, don't worry. It's not so bad. And then... The first time I tried using it, I broke your sewing machine. I still maintain that you did not break my sewing machine. It felt like I broke your sewing machine because I was using it and it broke and it was the first time I ever used it. And so it felt like, well, obviously I don't know what I'm doing because the machine is now broken. So what happened was basically like a catastrophic machine failure. And I still don't think that it was Christine's fault. I think it was just like some random fluke that somehow ended up with like a cascading series of failures in the machinery that ended up with this the needle bent and somehow sticking through the fabric but also embedded into the sewing machine foot and therefore unable to move right like the sewing machine wouldn't move at all right and so that was kind of like a, oh, crap, I was going to do this thing, and that did not go well. And it, we always said, well, we'll return to that someday. I always had was anxious about it, but it was like, we'll return to it someday. But if, honestly, if it wasn't for the pressure of this episode, I probably would have put it off a long time, you know, kind of indefinitely, maybe you, never. You've already put it off for a year since we pitched this idea. That's true. We bought fabric to make you skirts yeah, over a year ago. That's right. So, yes. So I did put it off for a long time. But yeah, it was, it's been a good experience. And I've learned the basics of how to use a sewing machine. Yeah. Episode over. So in the Emacs episode, you talked a little bit about your history with Emacs. Should I talk a little bit about my history with sewing? Sure. I don't actually remember the first time I used a sewing machine. I remember... Before kindergarten was when I had my own sewing machine. It was a children's sewing machine from like the 70s because it was like avocado green. and It was a hand-me-down. But that's a pretty good indicator of probably how old I was when I first used a sewing machine. Wait, for you weren't five years old yet and you had a sewing machine? Yep. And wait, this we've never talked about this before. This uh, This is... Like, that seems like, like, my impression of a sewing machine, even having just done it, is a scary thing with a needle, you know, like, thrusting and, you know, spiking this fabric over and over again. What do they do to make it so that you don't injure yourself as a child? So it's a kid's sewing machine, which means it can sew, like, two sheets of fabric together, and that's about it. Okay. Because it's, like, very weak. 
Okay. So, and... like, it would not go through my finger, it, even if I tried. Oh, okay. Although, apparently, when my mom was that age, she sewed through her finger. But... That's terrifying. <laughs> All right. Uh, now we've scared somebody else from learning how to sew. But the point is, I don't remember how old I was when I first used a sewing machine, but I was young. Okay. And I started with sewing clothes for my dolls, both hand sewing clothes for my dolls and machine sewing. And basically at that point, I just got scraps left over from whatever my mom's sewing projects were. And starting in high school, I made costumes myself and... As an adult, I've gotten more into making, like, functional clothing that I can actually wear places that aren't the Ren Faire or Asen. And, and actually, it's turned out to be important for you to be able to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Not just because it was useful for your dissertation to be able to learn those things, but actually because you now have a physical need. Yeah, I've mentioned this on the uh, podcast before. I'm not sure what context, but I have recently developed an, a skin allergy to, like, all synthetic fibers which is rough finding clothing (laughs) but it's fairly easy to find you know cotton fabric that doesn't have synthetic fibers so if you know how to make clothes then that is definitely a plus for accommodating that particular need right so during the process of you teaching me sewing you said at one point well, I'm teaching you to sew the way that you taught me Emacs. Mm-hmm. And actually, that was very useful, the way that you ended up teaching me sewing. And, you know, I, I hadn't thought about the crossover between that, but I did think very carefully about the way that I taught you Emacs. So mm-hmm. what would what did you mean by that? So that was basically the idea of teaching from first principles or from fundamentals. And I mean, I didn't have Christine shear the sheep and spin the fiber and weave the fabric and stuff like that but and i, and I also didn't learn how the sewing machine worked right similar yeah, to how i don't you... know how the sewing machine works it is magic and, and and similarly i didn't try to teach you how programming languages work right off the bat mm-hmm. but as in terms of getting an intuition for how the key pieces work yeah so i i kind of did two phases the first one was my standard thing that i teach people when i'm teaching them how to sew which is a dice bag Because it's a really simple pattern, which I haven't made it yet, but I'm going to, by the time this episode comes out, make free software patterns for the dice bag and the skirt that Christine made. Wait, expand what free software means here? Uh, I think I've mentioned that on this podcast a couple of times as well. But we were in the IRC channel for Foss and Crafts. Like a year and a half ago. Yeah, like a year and a half ago. Someone asked the question, well, what is the term for a free culture pattern or tutorial for crafting, like a sewing sewing. pattern or a crochet pattern or something like that? And none of us knew of an existing thing. So we kind of workshopped some ideas. And Kat Walsh came up with the joke. Of free software. And that's where W-E-A-R and so that that's the the joke of free software. We'll we'll talk about that more towards the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, so anyway, the your your hello world basically of uh sewing stuff is is a dice bag. It's a dice bag. And for that project, I gave you fabric and I basically told you how to make that pattern as it was happening. The second day that we were Working on the sewing machine. Wait, wait, wait. There, the, for the, I, I, there's, there's a few other things you did in that process of mm-hmm. teaching. So first of all, let's talk about why the dice bag is a good process, right? Yeah. It's so it's simple. It's basically two seams, a hem, and then a drawstring. It's two squares of fabric, or it's one square of fabric or folded two. Folded over, yeah. You know, one square folded over, one rectangle of fabric folded over, and then yeah, you just sew two pieces. And the drawstring, right, you want to be able to pull the thing shut, is mm-hmm. where you throw in the space for the string and, and pull it through. And so, yeah, it's pretty simple. It's a, it's a very good Hello World mm-hmm. uh, example. But, but and, and we call it a dice bag, but it's really just a bag that can be used for sure, you whatever can, you have. You it's just we know coin- a lot of nerdy people who have dice. You could throw your coinage in there or whatever yeah, you want to do. Yeah, coin purse or, you know, trinket bag or... Whatever, yeah. You so, can put your dried flowers in there and have a 
your smelling salts. Right. So one of the other aspects of the way that you taught things when you taught me that I, I guess was similar to the way that I've taught you Emacs and programming and stuff like that is that you are present and there and explaining the next step that is coming up, mm-hmm. but you don't do the step for me. You nope. might demonstrate it once on like as an example, but then you always have me do it. Exactly. For both of these projects that Christine sewed on the sewing machine, it was 100% Christine's labor. There was one small obstacle on the skirt that I helped you get past, but that was... It was, it was a literal snag. There was a snag when it was pulling the elastic through. It got stuck inside of the the channel that it was basically getting pulled through. And you're like, oh, this is annoying. But I, hold on. It's mm-hmm. not essential to learning this experience. It'll pull it through. Yeah. But otherwise, else, I did all the steps. And so, um, and actually towards the end of it, I felt like, okay, cool. You know, Morgan and I did this thing. And you said, no, no, no. You did this thing, which is... That is your dice bag. And the same thing with the skirt. You know, the, mm-hmm. no, 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 this is your skirt. And and I actually kind of felt guilty, like, well, I don't know. Morgan walked me through this whole thing. And then I realized... That you did the exact same thing when you were teaching me both programming and how to use Emacs. And no you, matter would how... say, you would say the same thing I was internalizing at the moment. And I had to listen to myself what i would say to you to counteract it because what what would you say every time i would teach you a thing well that i was just copying you right and so like and you're like well i didn't really learn this thing i was just copying you i was just doing like the things that you you told me but like then turns out that's just how you learn things right but it's really important to have the hands-on experience right because that's the most effective way to be able to kind of build mm-hmm. up those memories and, and start to build an intuition for how to do things yeah. right so uh, with this kind of two-step thing for first principles, though, the first day with the dice bag, I kind of just, I provided materials and talked you through doing it and you did it yourself. But that day, I kind of more just like, here's your setup, let's do this. The next day, I had you read through the uh, patterns that I had made first. So you had, made, and, you had made draft blog posts that you are going to put on your blog. Which will be up by the time this episode is out. That you had printed out and handed to me. And you said, well, don't worry. There's going to be pictures in here that we'll take as we do this. Mm-hmm. And you had two simple skirt designs. Mm-hmm. One of which, I'm going to say it out loud and see if I get it right. Uh, so one of which was, I guess what's called like an A-shape skirt is a line because it's shaped like an a okay an a line skirt so it's basically a a skirt you know it moves out kind of like a funnel and you make it out of these two pieces and you've added pockets to the skirt basically Mm -hmm. and that was the because seriously who doesn't want pockets in their skirt right and so that was a simple skirt example and then the other one that you had was basically you just had these enormous squares that was going to be the entire skirt Mm -hmm. and you cut out a hole in the middle of them and then you line it up so that they're uh, so that they're basically the intersecting. Uh, they're intersecting, so it creates a nice pattern of kind of these triangles moving yeah. at one after another with the with uh, an asymmetric hem. With an asymmetric hem, and and I read through both of those posts, and I said, okay, I read them. I think it's hard for me to process without the pictures, but this is also I'm a little bit. It, it's we're gonna have to walk through this because I I couldn't absorb that information and mm-hmm. and you had asked me what was surprising about it so I said well I thought that the skirt that I had been wearing at the moment that you had made for me in about twenty minutes before I had to take Christine to the airport to go to a conference yeah I was like I thought that, that skirt was made in a different way it was just made like a cylinder. Right, like where you just had like one or two pieces of fabric that you would basically sew together, and the A shaped skirt had kind of a nicer shape to it, and the the other one also was nice, but it, they seemed much more complicated, and like it was, it felt like a lot more steps, and I was like, well, why not just do one of these cylinder ones as my first skirt? And basically the reason that I hadn't made a pattern for that is because it's so simple that I didn't think it needed a pattern. Okay, 
you saying it's so simple this this feels to me like you saying when it's easy right (laughs) yeah it's easy right the emacs episode right right that's your story your your thing and i mean just imagine if you had just walked through those steps and you said and it's easy right i probably would have been like but actually the cylinder one if i had watched you walk through most of it i probably could have followed most of it Mm -hmm. um but the i don't think that that would have been true for the a line and the other one it would have felt more intimidating yeah so so we'll put simple in air quotes because i thought they were simple patterns but christine reminded me that as a beginner beginner i should probably start with a even simpler well so so what you even said well i could go get an index card and draw a pattern for this and i said do you need to here's what i thought it was and i just described it you said explain to me what you think will happen out loud and i explained it and you're like oh yeah that's what that's what we do Mm -hmm. and I was really glad we did that because then I was able to focus. I didn't have to worry about focusing on learning a pattern, right? The pattern was like a very simple design. You're just making a cylinder, right? And Mm -hmm. you're using elastic to make it so that it pulls together at the top. And then I could focus on internalizing the steps of the sewing machine, not focus on the way that the pattern works specifically, right? And there Mm -hmm. were enough steps for me to learn about the sewing machine stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we actually started cutting any patterns or sewing, I basically simulated a fabric store in our living room. I got out probably about like 20 different fabrics. And after reading the instructions for the other two, I said, okay, so what things do you have to consider when picking out your fabric? And we talked about, you know, how some fabrics are. 48 inches wide, some are 54 inches wide, some are 60 inches wide, so you have to keep that in mind. Right. Well, and you you also asked, like, which ones of these would be good for which pattern, right? And mm-hmm. that was actually, I think, maybe before we decided on the cylinder mm-hmm. approach. But but it was, it, it was clear, having read those blog posts, that the kind of double-layered, I forget what you called it, the double-layered... I just it, called it a layered skirt. The layered skirt version, just having the squares where you cut the hole out of the middle for the ones that had a pattern that went in a specific direction that would mean that the pattern was going the right way for part of the skirt but then would like rotate to the wrong direction as the skirt moved around basically so the fabric that christine chose would have scientist ladies standing on their feet on the front and then scientist ladies standing on their head on the back of the skirt yeah the, the the skirt i made has a bunch of scientist ladies on it and and does actually on the the material that we bought say a very large copyright claim on it so we're i did sew a free software thing on it but you could actually argue that it was not a fully free software skirt in the sense that the, the well no the pattern the is pattern free is, software the pattern is free software and the, then the yeah. but then the, the the actual material that appears on the skirt yeah is copyrighted there's uh, blobs there's blobs that's right <laughs> So yeah, we talked through uh, various things that you need to consider. Right. And then, but since we went with the simple cylinder one, it was actually great for this kind of pattern that goes in one direction anyway. And one of the other things is that that I liked about the pattern is that it was very forgiving. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so it was great. I, we, we, I picked out the fabric that I wanted to use. We did the measuring and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And then we got to it. And since this, the fabric that this skirt is made out of is a patterned, quilting fabric it was also 45 inches wide which we needed to add another panel to it in order to get the fullness that you wanted Mm -hmm. so we did have to keep in mind like when you're pinning the two pieces together make sure that one side is not standing on their heads one side standing on their feet Mm -hmm. i guess once we had done that cut everything out and it was time to actually start using the sewing machine. Yeah. So let's just talk about your experience learning sewing. Because we haven't talked about your background knowledge yet at this point. Okay. Um, well, I like I mentioned, I had learned how to hand sew and to sew buttons on things when I was very young. My mom and my grandma taught me those skills. And I was very grateful that i had those skills i could mend things and everything like that and serious shout out to my mother-in-law yeah and my grandma uh for giving me those skills and that was great i i really liked having those skills but well i mean we already talked about how i was kind of intimidated about the sewing machine so sitting down to use it 
Well, the dice bag thing, we already talked about having walked through that. So that, that had already removed some of the intimidation, right? Mm-hmm. And the, I guess the, the weirdest thing about the sewing machine is that when I did the hand sewing, it, like you can see what's happening, right? It's mm-hmm. very clear. You, you can understand what the process of sewing actually means. Yeah. The thread goes in one side, out the other, and then you yeah, repeat. And you, but like sewing machines are this weird dark magic thing to me and you know i guess i still don't like i didn't spend any time i had actually thought maybe before we recorded this episode i should watch some videos about how sewing machines work maybe we want to incorporate that and stuff like that but actually now that we've talked about it and we talked about how when you were learning emacs and when you were learning about programming we did not hop to, well, how do programming languages, how do you design a programming language? How do you design a text editor, right? Those are mm-hmm. not the things that we taught up front. And so yeah, you want would, the faucet, not the fire hose. Right. You like those are things I'd like to learn eventually, but it was not related to picking up this skill. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so at the moment, it's still dark magic. I'd like to understand what's happening there, but it's still a weird dark magic machine. Yeah. And most of it, I thought, was pretty smooth, right? You told me, here, do this, and then I would move forward. And there were only a couple of times that things screwed up. One of them, mm-hmm. or actually a couple times, was I didn't realize that the the thread had not been through the needle. And so I did a bunch of, quote unquote, sewing that hadn't happened. Yeah. And Or uh, the bobbin ran out of thread. And since you're only seeing the top layer of thread, you're not seeing the bottom layer layer you might not notice yeah and and actually this is one of the weird things about sewing machines to me is that they you know when i sew i sew using this one specific needle i don't so when you sew as like the mechanism is your hands yeah i'm not magically running two needles in and out of each other at the same time and that's like a a thing that sewing machines do uh, which also makes them very mysterious to me and so there's this other set of thread that's underneath and yeah i hadn't realized that that had you pointed it out that 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 had been gone. You're like, well, let's refill the bobbin, and I guess you can buy bobbins pre-filled. You absolutely can, and that is a valid choice because bobbins can be a bit tricky. But first of all, I hadn't known that it had run out, and I didn't know what to do. You actually said, well, let's just fill the bobbin. It's not that hard. I can show you how to do it. But and then we did it, and it was a strange thing to use this extra machinery that's on the top of the Singer sewing machine. Mm-hmm. So for people who don't know how this works, there is an extra kind of mechanism on the top of the machine that you move this thing, and instead of the whole sewing machine, you know, needles going up and down motion, it just spins the bobbin around so that that bottom layer of thread wraps around the bobbin, and basically it's a much tinier spool. But it wasn't that hard, but it was a, just a very strange and mysterious process. And I yeah. said, I never would have figured this out on my own. And you said? Well, and a lot of people don't, right? A lot of the people who sew learned how to sew when they were children. And it's largely a thing that has historically been taught as kind of like women's social learning, right? Whether it's sewing by hand, like your mom and your grandma teaching you and i'm assuming also your sister so when you were a child you learned how to refill the bobbin uh well when i was a child i learned how to refill the bobbin and i was not good at it so up until about high school i still had my mom help me refill the bobbin because it's tricky right (laughs) part of it was having the having the support structure of when i had trouble doing the bobbin i had my mom there who was a more like experienced. experienced sewer who could help me do it. And so if you don't have a group of women or men, sorry, it's just typically this has historically been a very, a gendered. very gendered female thing until you get into the workforce, uh, at least. Well, this is so we've talked before on this podcast about how different crafts including programming can be Mm -hmm. very gendered right so it's part of even though i had interest in learning how to use a sewing machine i kind of felt like when i was younger i think i felt kind of intimidated and like it wasn't really supposed to be for me Mm -hmm. and i would not blame my parents for that it's not that my parents i'm I'm sure my mom would have been happy to help me learn 
But I think I felt intimidated and I had that feeling like, oh, this kind of isn't supposed to be something that's for me. Yeah. Right. And And there's lots of these kind of gendered craft skills that are taught largely through socialization starting as children. Right. So as an adult, I have learned some woodworking skills and a very small amount of like working on cars. And those are both things that my brother was socialized to do and learned how to do as either a child or a teenager. And you learned a lot of it by watching videos, right? I did. YouTube taught me a lot of my craft skills. The availability of video tutorials on the internet. I mean, even textual tutorials before video tutorials were available made a lot of things possible, especially programming type things, right? But like the availability of video tutorials, I think it's really dramatically expanded the scope of what kind of skills can be very quickly at a person's disposal in a way that hadn't existed previously. Yeah, and this gendered socially taught um, set of skills is not necessarily um, restricted to craft skills the way that we're talking here, but also, as you said earlier, maybe the division between programming and quote-unquote soft skills that we see in the tech world as well. So part of the thing that got me really convinced Back in the day before it was called Outreach, when it was called Gnome, uh, Outreach Program for Women, the first incarnation of that, I remember when I was in college, I remember reading about the program and being really uh, interested in it. And I wrote a paper in college trying to explore that and why I had seen, seeing if there was some relationship between. It was for the, a philosophy class, right? For an no, it was, class? it was for writing the women, uh, writing the women artists. Oh, right. Yeah, it was a feminist art history class. One of the things that I had observed was I was learning Blender at the time, which is, you know, this 3D artwork software. And I noticed that there were very, very few, you know, women identifying people who were participating in learning Blender at that time. And this is like 15 years ago. And I had wondered if that was similar to the reason why I had observed and many people had observed that there were very few women in free and open source software at the time. And at this time, there was, you know, this program had appeared for GNOME Outreach Program for Women. So I did some research to see, is there, are there other field, are there other studies of where people could have like tried to look at and solve this? And there's an interesting study from Carnegie Mellon. If I can find the paper again, I'd like to link to it. I can probably look at my college notes to see if I can find it. You can probably find that writing the women artist paper somewhere. I have it on my computer. Um, I think we have a hard copy in a file cabinet somewhere too. Yeah. um, But there was this, I'm saying this from memory, but it was this thing that one of the things that they found when Carnegie Mellon was improving its gender ratio in in, uh, its classes is that they found that... For computer uh, science, For computer science is that the... The woman who was running the program was saying, you know, well, why is it that so few women appear to be in the program? And then why is it that so few women seem to stick around? Succeed through the program. Succeed through the program. And she observed that, like, you know, she knew a bunch of male colleagues who would, like, go on a boat and, like, whiteboard things or, like, hang out together and whiteboard things. And then she... Or go to, like, drinks after work. Or or go to drinks after work. And when she ended up becoming a mother, like, she became very disconnected from any other colleagues and stuff like that. And one of the things they did in their program was that they ran potlucks, Mm -hmm. right? And so that, that was part of why I got... I became very convinced at that time... And that was very successful, right? Having the potlucks. And why was the potluck successful, like a women's potluck? Well, it is a more feminine-coded social gathering that is, you know, an approachable way to network that doesn't necessarily discourage people with families or... And you can also then meet other colleagues who you you know you're like oh okay now i know these other women who are also programming Mm -hmm. and not feel as alone in this type of thing right and Mm -hmm. so anyway the so i'm saying yes i think that that's true and also there's been plenty of articles talking about you know the lack of soft skills that have been taught to many people in tech and how that's kind of not perceived as an important yeah and by the quote-unquote soft skills what we're talking about is you know office management or conference and event planning or how, how documentation the, and how like the you have somebody who is like an like a trained 
got their degree in computer science programmer who is a woman and then they just become expected to be the person who orders lunch at the office and stuff mm-hmm. like that and become the the office mom right that does all the service work right so those are skills that people have to learn mm-hmm. but you know also in addition to sewing uh cooking is one of the things that i i was lucky that i took an interest in cooking in high school and my mom taught me and most of my friends who were dudes didn't learn to cook mm-hmm. when they were in high school or previously. Yeah, and cycling this back to the sewing thing, in my high school, I had both home ec and shop as options that I could take. And those are two generally um, gender-coded courses, right? So home economics is where you learn how to sew and cook and balance your household budget and things like that. And shop is where you learn how to use the power tools and how to do some basic woodworking, maybe some basic electrical work, things like that. And I didn't take either of those courses, but I had the home ec side of skills from my socialization as a child. So one of the things that I I think tying this back to programming, one of the things I guess of having transitioned is, you know, I did receive some amount of socialization. The main area where I I think I received the most obvious amount of socialization was that it was kind of accepted and embraced that when I said I was interested in programming, it it seemed like, oh yeah, this is of course a thing that, you know, then Chris, you know, now Christine would, would do. And, you know, like, oh, no, no surprise. Yeah, this is, this is great. Right. And that might not have happened as easily. Not that I think for any conscious reason, um, I might not have received the level of encouragement. Maybe I would have. I don't know. But my parents also, I, I think I was not as interested in very masculine activities, like the traditionally very masculine activities. And so I didn't learn a lot of those. And also, I think my dad, who may end up listening to this, also was probably not the best example of a person who knew all of those activities himself. The and, traditionally male activities. Yeah, yeah. but I, I did benefit from the expectation that it would be a reasonable thing for me to program mm-hmm. when I express that amount of interest. Yeah. The gender division of labor is something that I could talk about for hours and have basically written a book on. So let's go back to your experiences learning and sewing. Right. And there were a couple of times that I was really impressed by where I was about to tell you the next step of what we were, what you were supposed to do, and you had already just kind of started doing it. I guess we could call it intuitive, but mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't think that's completely right. I had pieced it together from previous steps that we had done. One example of that was when we were doing the dice bag. So at this point, you had done two seams on a sewing machine, and I was about to tell you the next step. And I looked over and you were already folding over the top to make basically a hem at the top that would we would then thread the string through. And you were already intuitively doing that. Yeah. And I mean, the word intuition is a little bit weird here in some ways also, because it's like, I think it's just kind of like, I don't know, deduction, induction. I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but like, you know, yeah, like you, you hadn't said as like a recipe now you have chopped up the onions now put the put it in the pan and now add oil and start frying it and then the next thing you do something similar you didn't put it down step by step for that i was able to figure it out but that's because i knew what was coming next like as in terms of what needed to happen next and you had already shown me the necessary things i needed to know Mm -hmm. to do the next thing right yeah and then the other one actually started as a miscommunication so i was trying to get you to look at where you were starting the seam. So it was when we were connecting the two ends of the elastic waistband after you had threaded it through the waistband of the skirt. And we were. this is actually probably the point where I was getting the most frustrated because you mm-hmm. kept trying to tell me what to do next and I wasn't understanding what you were saying and I was getting frustrated. And actually mm-hmm. you told me to put it in a specific place and I was like, well, why don't I just do it? here and it turned out that the the approach i had suggested was fine yeah and but that wasn't actually what you had but was that where the needle thing ended up happening that, I don't remember. that was where the needle thing had ended up happening so basically i was saying on a normal seam if you start your seam about a quarter inch down from the top of the fabric that's fine because it's only a quarter of an inch but if you're 
are sewing something on an inch long piece of elastic and you start a quarter of an inch down, then that leaves a quarter of the entire space undone. And what Christine ended up doing is she did start a quarter of an inch down and then she just reversed all the way to the top and then sewed all the way back down to the bottom again. So it was fine, but we weren't communicating that properly at the moment or we were having trouble understanding what the other was trying to communicate. So as an illustration, I suggested that Christine turns the knob on the side of the sewing machine so that the needle would stick into the elastic and I could demonstrate where exactly that seam was going to start. Oh, okay. And then that's not... That's and not... apparently right now is when Christine understood what I was trying to illustrate. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then, I just, <laughs> and then I just ended up moving forward and... Yeah, I thought that you had said put it down there to be able to understand where it's going to be position-wise. Yeah. But later on, throughout the the rest of the sewing that needed to happen, after we got the elastic actually threaded through and everything like that, mm-hmm. you have to actually sew the I don't sew sew the cha- the channel shut basically. Yeah. And so So basically when you're making a waistband, you well, the way that we made the waistband at least there are other methods out there, but uh, you fold over basically a large hem that's big enough to fit your uh, elastic through, and you sew it most of the way, leaving a little bit of a gap, and that gap allows you to feed the elastic through. And then you have to close that gap. But I was nervous that I was going to accidentally sew the elastic to the cloth, which mm-hmm. is not what you want to do. Because so then to- you can't stretch it anymore. And so to make sure that I didn't do that, I just pushed the needle down into the fabric. I had just picked up on that from the previous things you had said. And so I just did that for the next few times without you telling me this would be a good way to be sure that it's going to be in the right position. It just mm-hmm. seemed like the obvious thing based off of the information you had already provided previously. Yeah. But and you, then as but she you were, finished the skirt, Christine just did that every time she started a seam. Yeah. And, and you were like, oh, wow, you picked up on that without me having to, you know, drill this home as a, an idea. I'm glad I accidentally taught you something. Well, I mean, it's how a lot of useful things that you end up learning uh, end up going. Yeah. This is Christine's word. I don't know if I like it. Christine put screw ups on here, but it's more like... What were the mistakes I kept making? Yeah. It's more like your learning opportunities here. Yeah. Well, I made several mistakes. So one one of the mistakes is that I kept forgetting to put the foot down on the sewing machine, the foot that holds, holds holds the fabric in place, right? And so I kept forgetting to put that down, and that would be a problem. I also kept missing that the thread would not be connected, um, like either it had gotten pulled out or it, it had run out, and I would end up sewing an entire area and nothing would be sewn in it. It's really easy to sew an entire seam and then realize that the bobbin thread ran out or your top needle wasn't threaded. Right, and so I did both of those things a lot. But, you know, those aren't that bad because you can just back up and... and do it again and it didn't cause any serious damage mm-hmm. but there was one thing that i actually screwed up where in some places it might have been a problem sewing mm-hmm. the loop of elastic together mm-hmm. to make to close the loop basically something happened where it got all loopy on the back end which is called well i actually don't know if this is a technical term or if it's just what my mom and i called it but uh it does this kind of bird's nesting thing you where call it a crow's nest right Oh, bird's nest, crow's nest. I think you're the one who started using crow. Oh, really? <laughs> I thought that you were saying crow's nest. Oh, well, maybe, I don't know. So anyway, what's called apparently bird's nesting, where it was just basically like a, got very loopy on the back end. Basically, the um, the bobbin thread doesn't have the right tension. And so instead of being a nice straight line, like a seam normally is, the backside of your fabric ends up with a bunch of, like, kind of loose loops and stuff like that yeah i don't know what that i i I don't i didn't process it that way i was just like there's lots of loops right it it didn't look strange it didn't look good yeah a lot of strange loops they were not conscious they did not develop into recursion but they were strange loops but it turned out that that didn't matter because that was for the that was for something that was going to be closed over and not seen anyway. Well, it's not going to be visible, and also the way that I attach to ends of elastic when I'm doing a seam, because that's a seam that's going to have a lot of tension on it, right? Because it's elastic being pulled. Is I do three horizontal lines 
kind of like parallel to each other. There was a lot of redundancy in the tension uh, yeah. that was added. And Christine being a very nervous person basically went like up and back at least three times on each of those so scenes. I tripled the triple redundancy. So there were enough fail safes built in that the crow's nesting was not actually going to damage the structural integrity of that elastic band. Yeah. And, and it was... it's not visible because it's inside the waistband of your shirt. So who cares? And yep. so some failures are just fine. Just move ahead. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter. And bird's nesting is not a thing that you should feel bad about. You remember when I said that up until I was in high school, I had my mom do my bobbins? That's because like every time I would fill a bobbin, it would start off crow's nesting and I had no f- freaking clue why and i would go and i would ask my mom and she wouldn't even re-spin the bobbin she would just like take the bobbin out put it back in and so like a single seam on a test piece and be like it's fine now um and magically that problem went away yeah i don't know i i don't understand why that why that would do it but yeah okay cool anyway yeah, one of the other things that was nice is that we had some friends who came over while we were doing this, right? We had, mm-hmm. when when doing the dice bag, our friend Dan came over. Ooh, Dan of Tiny, the Tiny NES campaign, mm-hmm. which we should mention. Has was, successfully was, completed. Was successfully completed over 3x the amount needed yeah, to be raised. Yeah, it was like 330% funded. I don't know why we threw that into the middle of this episode instead of like at the beginning. But anyway. The, because we mentioned Dan. <laughs> yeah, it's because we mentioned Dan. And then our friend Tulja came over when doing the skirts. And it was just really nice to have friends around, even though they weren't actively sewing at the time themselves. Mm-hmm. It just kind of reminded me how much crafting can be nicer when it's a social experience. Yeah. And Dan was working on a crochet project while we were sitting around. So, like, you can have multiple crafts going on at the same time and have a social gathering around those activities. That's right. And I guess that's part of the reason we do hacking craft. Yeah, is because you can have a social event happening around productive crafting uh, in a way that makes, especially if you're doing tedious tasks. So, you know, if you are stitching by hand or if you are, you know, doing something that you only need half of your mind for, then you can absolutely have a conversation about free software or OER or something like that. Yep. So one of the other things I thought was that a lot of these things, it's nice when you're able to actually kind of link ideas of the thing that you're learning to other things. Mm-hmm. I guess you were you were kind of pleasantly surprised at one point yeah, when I did that. There was one thing that I really enjoyed your connection here is when I was going through and saying, okay, so what things do you need to observe about the fabric before you cut out your pattern and before you, you know, piece your skirt together? I was trying to explain what a salvage is. Basically what that is, is when the fabric is woven, there's going to be the sides of the fabric that are just woven as the sides. So they, they aren't cut. Right. And you were asking me, which sides do we have to worry more about preventing fraying issues? Right. And you were trying to get me to develop an intuition for why that would be and and then when i started thinking about i said oh okay so when things are being woven these pieces at the bottom when you're just cutting it it's basically cutting the thread in several places mm-hmm. so like you're that makes sense to me why that that has risk of fraying but the the ones that are going back and forth it's kind of like a like a dot matrix printer or a typewriter mm-hmm. right and and you were like oh dot matrix printer that's really good and why did you think why did you like it uh, because the dot matrix printer has the areas on the side of the pages that are kind of distinct from the way that the rest of the paper works, right? Because they've got the holes in it and it feeds the paper up. And even though it's not a direct one-to-one comparison, it's a good illustration in that you can see that it's the border of the paper and it's specifically, you know, on the two sides And the bed of fabric often has, you know, these little kind of pinprick holes in it from part of the weaving process. Right. And with the kind of new line carriage return, 
if you think on a typewriter where somebody's typing type 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 and then they go ching and like the thing goes all the way back and the same thing with a dot matrix printer it goes you know print 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 and then the head moves back over to the left again mm-hmm. after moving all the way to the right and everyone who's our age or older is now hearing that noise in their head and everyone who is younger is like what the heck is a dot no matrix clue what printer this reference is. i don't <laughs> I don't know what a typewriter is. No, that I'm, you probably know what a typewriter is, but you probably have not used one. Yeah. Uh, um, maybe you did. Just but knowing the noise of a dot matrix printer, I think is. <laughs> but you were trying to help me to understand which pieces I was going to have to pay more attention to make sure we prevented fraying, mm-hmm. and it made sense to me once we had that explanation that when you would do the weaving, and that with this part being the part that was done horizontally. The they, left for the, those who want the vocabulary. Yeah. And actually, we talk about this in one of your... So first of all, it made sense to me because you had actually talked about that in... I, in my dissertation. In your dissertation. And, and therefore I, also the dissertation episode. And I think it in the From Sheep to Sweater mm-hmm. episode, maybe. Yeah. That process of like, you know, you're doing the weaving and the, the horizontal part. Sure. Okay. I can see that that part looping back in, unlike if you cut the stuff that's going top to bottom... That part just looping back in and on itself. Because that's it's, one thread that just keeps... It's not fraying. Yeah, it's just looping back in again. So, of course, it would be stronger than it being top to bottom and then you cutting across there and it making a bunch of loose threads mm-hmm. as you sever it in various places. Yeah. I took a workshop on embroidery at Wiscon several years ago. And, like, I had learned embroidery when I was a kid and was like ugh, this is too much work and it's hard and then it turns out that that's just because your hand-eye coordination when you're like 10 is not great Um, and it's easier to do as an adult but when i was in this workshop the instructor was saying the smaller the width of your stitches are the more natural the curve is if you're trying to embroider a curved line And I said, oh, like scalable vector graphics, like SVG. And turns out the person who was doing the instructor was a UI UX person. And she just like looked at me surprised and was like, yeah, exactly like SVG. Mm -hmm. It's nice when you can make those kind of crossovers. Mm -hmm. So what do you think went well? Well, I think that most things went really well. I mean, you're wearing an actual skirt right now that you made. I'm wearing an actual skirt that I made. I'm glad that we took the approach that we did. I mean, so most of it was pretty straightforward. My fear that the machine would break on me, which like I knew was not rational. It was nice to actually go through the process and have that not happen. Right? Sewing machine is still intact. Right. And I really like the way that you did the teaching, um, you know, which I guess you said, I'm going to explicitly like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to emulate you. Yeah. Teaching you, Max. But I thought it, it worked really well for me. I was really grateful that we did not do the more complex patterns because I felt like I was able to really focus on the specific skill I needed to pick up, which was the sewing machine itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, if once having done that, I now feel more ready to do those other patterns without being afraid of the sewing machine. I can now actually kind of engage myself on patterns. Yeah. So with the simpler patterns, when I was making those patterns, I made what I thought were two very basic skirt patterns. And I didn't anticipate that they were going to be too complex when we started. But then once Christine mentioned it, it was like, obviously, there is a simpler skirt pattern. And the reason that I chose that kind of cylindrical pattern for the other skirt that I made for Christine before is because... There was a half hour before Christine was leaving to get to the airport for a conference and wished she had one more skirt that she could bring with her. And I'm like, hold my beer. <laughs> and Except you don't bring beer. I, I don't hold bring beer. It's the, the metaphorical hold my beer. Uh-huh. And I whipped up a skirt in 20 minutes. So it was the simplest possible, but it was fine and it was done. And it somehow didn't even occur to me to just use that pattern. So it seems to me that having these kind of incremental sets of patterns from, you know, kind of beginners to more experienced folks, you know, having kind of the range of patterns, it seems like a lot of these things could be just useful kind of to collect as things that other people could use. And it seems like it could be a good 
free cultural work. So do mm-hmm. you have thoughts about that? Well, I really like the idea of the free software. And I know that uh, at least one other person, Valhalla, who is a frequent uh, visitor in the Fossencrafts IRC channel and often attends the Hack and Crafts as well, has made free software patterns. And she has her own free software clothing labels uh-huh. that she uses that are different from the ones that we made. But we were considering the idea of maybe doing, maybe as a Git repository. Like a, like a st- some sort of like public project. Yeah, where people could kind of like contribute free software patterns. patterns. And it doesn't have to be sewing. It could be whatever craft tutorial. I mean, for the free software metaphor to work, it should probably be textiles. But Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I guess if you find that interesting, you should weigh in. Yeah, let say- us know. Um, I mean, you can find how to contact us at the end of the episode in the credits. But we're not quite there yet. Yeah. So... One of the things that I noticed a contrast between the first time I tried to teach you how to sew on the machine over a decade ago and this time is at that point when I asked what you wanted to make, you didn't really have many ideas. And when I floated some ideas, you weren't very excited. So we ended up deciding to make laptop cases because I figured, well, they're all straight lines. (laughs) It's all rectangles. And we can do that. And you were interested in making a laptop case. And the fabric that you made the dice bag out of on this round was actually the fabric that you had chosen to make that laptop bag. Like 15 years ago? Yeah, like 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, and it was a much more, we even had a friend comment on it. They asked, did you pick this out pre-transition? It was a very, it, it was a, it was yeah, it was a very like subdued blue and brown, blue like, brown and khaki stripes. Yeah, that like was, you know, kind of like avoiding being that interesting of a pattern. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of like, eh, I guess let's we'll take this. Like now, like I was really excited to pick out a whole bunch of different styles of fabric yeah. to make these projects with, and we had also talked about. I'm also excited to make a whole bunch of different kinds of things. What do you want to do next? Well, I'd like to modify some of my older i guess quote-unquote boy mode t-shirts to be uh, there's some of them i still like the the patterns that are on them but i also just have a lot of them i'd like to make them have more feminine cuts or Mm -hmm. modify them in other types of ways a lot of them are even like conference t-shirts and stuff like that yeah and there's also i've come to kind of like the t-shirt style dresses too but they're kind of too boring and plain and i would actually like to make them more interesting which is actually a completely different skill set for sewing, because that's either going to be adding embellishments, so like trim or ribbons or buttons or something like that, or doing something like embroidering. Mm-hmm. And those are both things that I am very excited to teach you how to do, if you are interested. I am interested. And yeah, I guess there's this other practical thing that... I, well, this is going to spoiler another future episode, which we, we always keep do. doing. We so, know it's not best practice. What is this one? I want you to talk about this one. So we both, but definitely more so Christine, have uh, repetitive strain injuries in our wrists. And I would be willing to bet that a fairly large number of people listening may have similar problems because a lot of times people who spend a good portion of their time on computers end up with these uh, repetitive strain injuries in their wrists. And Christine, when she first was diagnosed with RSI problems, had kind of like a catastrophic event that made this happen and then had to spend like a month without touching a computer and it was bad. It's a bit different than that. Well, we, we should cover repetitive strain injuries in a future episode. Anyways, Christine has one pair of RSI gloves that she likes. And when she first found out about the RSI, she tried like 20 different types of RSI gloves. And hated most of them. And I found one that I really, really like. And it is now... No, no longer lo- produced. No longer produced. So the one that I have is, is like... It's like fraying everywhere at the edge. It's edges. like six or seven years old. It and has all of these threads poking out of it. Somebody actually mistook it fraying so badly to being a stylistic choice. Yeah. 
and so like that, lace yeah and, and it was that's like, and not then, lace it's just worn yeah and then they they took a look at it closer and they're like oh wait a minute uh <laughs> and so you have thought that maybe it would be possible to solve this problem yeah so i have ideas on how to make similar rsi gloves that we can kind of custom make to the sizes we need and also the specifications we need because as i said i also have rsi problems and, um and it's been very hard to get gloves that can fit your hands yeah because like 100 percent of commercially made uh rsi gloves that i've encountered are made out of spandex or other incredibly synthetic materials so and even just finding ones that fit the shape of your hands was kind yeah, of because i have little hands i have better luck finding them that fit my hands actually at craft stores because rsi problems are also very common among crafters too so like people who spend a lot of time knitting or crocheting or sewing by hand so i guess if you're into foss and crafting yeah there's more like, like the intersection of people who are interested in our podcast a lot of them very likely have repetitive strain injuries. So, so we are. So here's some amount of an. Here's something practical that we could do to mm-hmm. apply these. Uh, to to make it a very practical, free software pattern mm-hmm. that could help free software activists. Yeah. Once in person conferences are a thing again, I even have an idea on how to use like mouse pads that you get as conference swag as the uh as the cushion that's a great idea (laughs) because then it would be even like more free software so anyways i have ideas but i don't have an actual pattern yet and i have yet to actually like test my theories so we should test that could be an interesting future episode and also could be a useful contribution that maybe many programmers could benefit from Mm -hmm. yeah and so there's one last thing i'm interested in doing and this one is making a purse. And actually, this is me being very inspired by you. Yeah, I have been making my own purses for probably over a decade. I don't know exactly how long, but I'm probably on like my fifth or sixth iteration of my purse. So wait, why do you make your own purses? So I have a bad back. I have a degenerative spinal disorder. And basically, I cannot carry that much weight. Otherwise, it hurts. But with purses, the amount of space I have inevitably will be the amount of space I fill in a, sp- in a purse. Mm-hmm. Because you just kind of accumulate detrius until, you know, you've got this gaping chasm that you're carrying around with, like, crackers from six months ago. So Morgan's purses end up incredibly specialized. Yeah, so I I started making my own purses because I couldn't find a purse that had... Everything that I wanted and absolutely nothing more. So I started making purses that had very specific spaces for the things that I need to carry on me. So my cell phone and my keys and either my tablet or a paperback book, which I know don't come at me. I know that that's not great for my back. But, you know, basically the very specific amount of things that I need in my purse and nothing more. Right. So I have been using a purse now for about a year, and I know the things that I want to be carrying around with me in my purse, and I am ready to make that less of a mess by actually producing my own thing. And there's there's some other aspects to it that I think could be interesting, but I, but I don't want to get into the details of that. But anyway, yeah, there are projects I would like to do. So yeah. thank you, Morgan, for taking the time to teach me to sew. Thank you, Christine, for actually getting involved in my hobby. And I guess that's it. Oh, and we will take a moment to thank our Patreon sponsors. To our Tier 1 supporters. Thank you to Vijay Gopal Marupudi and Tim Howes. For our Tier 2 Mega supporters. Thank you to John Stachecki. And for our Tier 3 Ultra supporters. Thank you to Matthew Panhans. And also thank you to all of the supporters who have been contributing monthly but did not choose a support tier. We are going to respect your privacy and not read your names out loud, but we appreciate you nonetheless. If you'd like to have your name read out loud and you are currently a donor, know that selecting a a support tier is how we know that you want your name to be read on the air. And with that, I guess that's it. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Bye. 
Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christine Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christine Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at Octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community on hash Foss and Crafts on irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash Foss and Crafts. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free and stay crafty. So, um, you could just do that one straight seam and then, uh, and then pin and do the other seam, or you could try and pivot and do them both at once. What? See, so, go this way, and then you stop, and then you pivot the fabric. like, pivot strategy-wise, and, like, try to figure out how to literally sew both these. I'm like, no sewing machine can do this. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we try that? Just, like, (laughs) very wide one. (laughs) Multitasking sewing machine, probably not a good idea.